The Moten Mailbag is brought to you by the Robert Russo Moten Museum, located in Farmville, Virginia. The Moten Museum is a civil rights museum focusing on the history of Prince Edward County between 1951 and 1964. Welcome to the Moten Mailbag. I'm Kanan Townsend, the Director of Education and Public Programs. And I'm Leah Brown, the Assistant Director of Education. The Moten Mailbag is a weekly listener question show. Each week, we'll answer questions about U.S. history, African American culture, civil rights, and more. Feel free to submit your questions via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moten Museum. Or just email us at info at motonmuseum.org. Please send your questions. That's <laughs> the only way we can keep this going. We do appreciate it. So, Leah, how has life been post-quarantine world for you? I realized that I don't need to go to the grocery store as much as I initially thought I did. Um, so just been hanging out at home, uh, enjoying the weather, been sitting outside. It's been great. Good for morale, Lord knows. Um, so yeah, just, you know, just hanging in there, keeping perspective. What? How about you? Yeah, it's going. <laughs> um, like we said last pod, we are in air quotes essential. So we are still kind of here at work. I'm very, very thankful to be state employees and to yes. still be getting paid and such. I know a lot of people are not, but, mm-hmm. um, just, just things are just a lot more mundane than usual. Um, until the, this is over, whenever this is over, if this is over, but you know, drop to work drive back, drive to work, drive back, drive to daycare, drive to work, drive back. Like, it's just very, very meticulous. Um, but yeah, trying to, the weather's getting nice. It rains, so the pollen got washed away temporarily. So yes. <laughs> that's nice. I've been going for walks, which is nice. Um, yeah, but, you know, missing sports and... Oh, God, the sports. You know, human interaction and <laughs> oh. actually being able to find things in grocery store. Um, yeah by virtue of like fresh meat and stuff like that but you know we will continue to follow guidelines of the cdc and keep pushing on forward yep 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 um but but here we are back with the mailbag again please 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 keep sending your questions y'all been great about that so far if you don't send questions we will start emailing random people in our contact list and say ask oh, me I'll do a that. question mm-hmm. ask i will talk to my family i will call my mom and say mom ask me something anything She'll be like, what are you talking about? And I'll be like, it's cool. It's for the podcast. And teachers, help us help you. Please send in your questions. Have your kids send in questions. It's a great project. So far, these episodes have been averaging about 20 minutes. Is that, just, just buckle in. This is going to be a little bit longer because there are some very thought-provoking questions. Yeah. And the first one is going to be quite interesting. So let's go ahead and get into it. Leah, what year or what years... Do you think were some of the most significant in the topic of U.S. history? I'm going to go with the Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877. In that golden spotlight of a period in American history, the goals of democracy and representation were as close as they have ever been within the nation. So to complete those lofty goals that are in the founding documents that was when that was happening and then it was you know shut down um so we have that part but yeah um i'm gonna give it to reconstruction and when there was hope for representation within the nation granted the ladies weren't involved politically but they were also very much involved politically that's the 
head scratcher of American history. Women are definitely there. They're doing things, but they're not given much credit. Um, so to see, just to do, like, yeah, just reconstruction. Because so much was going on. The country was literally in shambles. Um, but that gave opportunity to build up some more until those in power took, who were in power took that power back. So, yeah. When did you decide that? Like, was there like a class or in, in, you know, in grade school or under, undergrad or grad that kind of really like, oh, wow, Reconstruction, yes. I think I decided that when, you know, looking at different documents and, all right, let's be clear. I was very confused when it was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was the first African-American man in Congress. I was like, how do you get to be in Congress? Oh, it was during Reconstruction. Oh, okay. So just finding different information about different people, so the um, like the exceptions, the outliers, and how like how they even got to be in power. Um, so maybe not a class per se, but definitely building up to that. You know, American, like figuring out or the class was American intellectual history <laughs> at William and Mary, and I was like, what? So how the different books and journals, those primary sources, um, well, the books, some books are not primary sources, but like the journals per se explain what society was like and then putting that content together with the timeline of, well, this is when this person was involved, the outliers. So just, yeah, just culmination of, wait a minute. Oh, oh that's why it worked. And that's why it stopped. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those years. It's an interesting time period. That is for sure. Um, How about you? I went with a year. And it's a year that is still remembered as one of the most impactful of the 20th century. Uh, and that year is 1968. Mm. And I went with that year in particular because, I mean, two very obvious things are assassinations, right? Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. You know, both were assassinated in 1968. You've got the U.S. in the height of the space race before we eventually land on the moon in 1969. You've got the end of LBJ's presidency. Uh, Nixon is elected. You've got Apollo 8 making the first rotation around the moon. You've got the Olympic protests. Um, and I'm going to kick myself because I can't remember their names, but, you know, the one where they won first place and third place mm -hmm. and they stood up and they threw their fist in the air. I mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so Vietnam, you name it, and it's happening in 1968. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a whirlwind. You could do a whole course on just that one year because of all the stuff that happened in 1968. Um, so for that reason, I went with that answer. And because, so this is a little bit of a sidebar, but... Um, I, everybody, not everybody, people sometimes wonder, I wonder what happened on my birthday, right? What happened on my birthday? My mm. birthday's November 22nd. Mm. And so 30 years before I was born was the assassination of John F. Kennedy, November 22nd, 1963. So ever since then, I'm just like, oh. So I've always felt this like connection to that time period and this connection to, to, to the Kennedys. Um, and so that just have always made me curious about, about them, about their background. And so I guess that kind of brought... 1968 even more to the forefront given everything that, that happened related to their family and, and otherwise yeah that, that makes sense yeah it checks somebody name a year that's more impactful somebody do it you can't do it kidding um well impactful is, is a broad term um but let's segue <laughs> on to the next topic uh and i will 
Leah will have to you stop read? me from talking on too long for this, this <laughs> next question. But okay. And Prince Edward. Wait, did I ask the first one? Did you ask the first one? You asked first one, you didn't did. you? I, I did. I okay, remember. you go for it. You oh, asked the I'll, next I'll, one. I'm gonna ask you. <laughs> and I'm gonna. Go. She's not to curtail me. <laughs> what would Farmville or Prince Edward County be like today without the Prince Edward County school closings? Oh Lord. Let's give a little bit of background. Yeah. Not assume that any, everybody knows. So, as you hear in our or kind of forward, forethought, whatever the, the proper term is. We focus on the history of Prince Edward County between 1951 and 1964. Uh, the latter half of that history is focused on the Prince Edward County school closings. That happened between 1959 and 1964. Public schools were closed here for five years to avoid desegregation. That's the short version of that. Mm -hmm. And so during that five-year time period, things changed drastically in the county. So prior to this, prior to this time period, uh, which is prior to a lot of things, Farmville was a very different place. Uh, people had to travel down Route 15 to get where they were going a lot more often back then, which often brought people right through Farmville, Virginia. So if you look at Main Street 1950s mm -hmm. and Main Street today, it might be similar, but that's only because Main Street today is finally getting back to what it used to be in, in, in the past. Back then, it was super vibrant. It was super bright, kind of like it is today. But Main Street didn't have a lot going on, you know, as much going on for a very long time after that time period. Uh, but there were a lot of hotels, lots of restaurants, lots of places to shop, lots of places to eat, lots of places to sleep. Uh, and that was because Farmville was a hub. People would come to Farmville back then to go shopping, like people in Farmville today might go to Richmond or Lynchburg or Charlottesville to go shopping. Uh, it, it was a spot, you know, so I am one to believe that if the school closings had not happened, that Farmville would be comparable to the size of Charlottesville right now. Um, I think truly, you know, highways, there's no major highways going through Farmville and Prince Edward County. I don't think that that's completely by accident. Uh, I think the school closings impacted economics on a way that we will never truly be able to measure. Um, you know, when there was a mass exodus out of Prince Edward County when the schools closed. It wasn't our poor, it wasn't our uneducated folks who were leaving. It was our young, it was our degree yielding, it was our very educated, highly educated skilled workers who were, who were leaving, and they weren't being replaced. Uh, businesses certainly closed down, but they were not being replaced by new businesses. Um, new businesses weren't going to come in because, you know, if you're a business and you're expanding, Two things you might be looking for first, a hospital and a school. If you didn't have one of those, it's pretty much a non-starter. Well, we didn't have a school, right? And so why would a business want to come to a place that doesn't have a public school, right? You need a place for your workers to send their kids to school and a steady supply of educated workers, and you need a place for them to go where they're sick. If you don't have one of those, why would you go there, right? When the schools closed in 59, there were two black doctors, something like that, in Prince Edward County, serving the entire African-American population. One left immediately when the schools closed. The other tried to stay. So now this doctor has to work with the entire African-American population of Prince Edward County and homeschool their son at the same time. As you can probably guess, that didn't last very long. And so now we have no black doctors in Prince Edward County. So this, essentially the Prince Edward County school closing, it, it completely put the boot on any expansion that was happening here in the, in the heart of Virginia because we had a we had a complete reboot because all those folks who were here left. I mean, there was a strong black middle class in Prince Edward County uh, for years, going back to post-Civil War time, right? Very strong African-American middle class. Um, and those are the people, exact people who were leaving, the people who didn't have to deal with it because they had skills that could transfer to, to other places. Um, and so they left, and it is were not replaced. And we have are now again, like I said, getting back to what old Main Street used to look like, in other areas, you know, economically. But 
it 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 put a boot it put a boot on it um and it and it stopped the growth for a very 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 long time i lose sleep thinking about this question and i've already talked too long and lee's looking at me funny so i need to wrap <laughs> it up but um i think often we would we i think i would wager even to say we might be bigger than charlottesville size wise if the schools had not closed here because that's how prominent economically we were in the commonwealth of virginia during that time and if we had gotten a highway go through farmville they would yeah this would it would have changed everything but i will stop my rambling and ask leah what her thoughts are on the question <laughs> so um fairly new to prince edward um so still learning a lot about the family groups that were here who left who could leave Definitely thinking about the mass exodus and how that changed everything. Um, you know, role, moder- role models matter. So if all your role models are leaving because there's no limited opportunities, that changes perspectives of students um, within the county. The Just the teaching um, capabilities, like the doctors are gone. If a kid has a question, who could they go to? For a medical question, you know, um, just medical services, stuff like that. So just how the community itself was impacted. I, I want to know more. I want to know which families were split. I want to know how how they tried to stay connected with that communication, but the split that happened, how that, you know, changed their um, experience. Because to me, when people leave, it definitely puts a hole um, in in the community, in what, in um, everything, really. I mean, because your com- your community is your family, your family is your community, and if somebody's missing, you feel that. Um, and if a whole bunch of people leave, that changes the dynamic altogether. I, I think folks folks who were locked out of schools would say a lot of the time. So this is so. And it's hard for us today to understand. I mean, Leah and myself, certainly, when we were in school, but certainly people who are in school now, like, they, I mean, technology-wise, like, how much we've advanced since that mm-hmm. time period, has, is, it's like we're in a whole other world, right? Um, and so what folks who were locked out of schools would say, like, Prince Edward County is a big county. Um, it's very, 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 very big. And so you didn't see your friends except for at school. Absolutely. Especially if they were a different part of the county. You were lucky if you had neighbors that you were cool with or siblings or something like that. But, like, when the schools were closed, they didn't hang out with nobody, really, because, you know, usually families, if they had a card, it was only one. It was for work and this, that, and the other. So, you know, that that changed everything. So the schools closed. They couldn't really go anywhere. They couldn't do anything. And, and we have to – not have to, but I, I think it's important for us to draw some parallels between what's happening now, um, you know, because of COVID-19, because of the, the kind of stay-at-home mm-hmm. order – you know, of course, it's very, very different, but, you know, Moton, I think we were thinking of ways to try to lean upon the wisdom of the past, lean the wisdom upon the wisdom of those who were locked out of schools for five years and try to use them to help shepherd and mentor some of these students now because these students have, are going through a, a similar experience, right? It's not identical, but a similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in school and all of a sudden they're not in school and then the rest of the year is, is gone. Um, and so I do, I do think a lot of these folks who are part of the locked out generation, as we call them, have a lot, a lot, a lot to offer insight wise for these students who are presently experiencing COVID-19 school closures. Definitely. Definitely. I didn't plan to say that it just came out, but, but that is I mean, something we're working on. Yeah. 
All right, let's get off the topic because I'll talk for hours, and this is only supposed to be 20-something minutes. Leah, what are your educational philosophies at Moton? Okay, so ed philosophy is pretty simple. Um, to inspire students that, well, to, one, tell them they have a voice, and their voice matters because they matter. Second thing, inspire, inspire them. If they see something, an issue in their community, they should try to address it, bring awareness to it. Um, part of, of doing that is to tell them what other students had accomplished. You know, 1951, Barbara Johns was 16, and in 1951, she inspired, motivated over 450 students to walk out of a school building. In 1951, I mean, if we just stop right there and think about the the expectation of a child in 51, you're seen, you're not heard, you follow instructions, you don't have a voice, you know, versus today where kids, they, they are listened to sometimes. They have a voice, they... They um, have more agency, maybe, um, to do things or feel like they have more agency. Um, definitely have more capabilities to get the word out on social media. So just letting students know that, no, you do have a voice. You can use it. Um, so that's part of it. The other part is to definitely honor those that went through this history like, we've talked about the school closings a lot um, because it's a major part of Prince Edward's story. It was traumatic. They lost five years of togetherness, five years of education, five years of you know, intellectual advancement. It changed what a lot of people could have been. You lost opportunity. So to honor the, like, what they went through and to provide a space at Moton to have those difficult conversations. That was deep. Yeah, that that got yeah that, that took a turn. It's all right. It's it's hard to not turn that way when we're talking about this stuff. So yeah, I understand fully. Um, what I'll, you got? Leah said it at all, but let me. I'll just we just we just try to let the students leave with more critical thinking skills than what mm -hmm. they came to the museum with. Um, hopefully, they're leaving curious. Hopefully, they are leaving asking questions. Uh, because that's very, very important. We want to ignite that inquisitive spark that these students may have already with them when they get to the museum. Um, it's about presenting this history, any history, in an objective way and let, letting them leave, making their, formulate your own opinion, right? We're not here to tell you how to think, but look for those perspectives, look for those mm -hmm. angles, look for how the story is presented, look for who's presenting the story, and then ask questions about it. Why did they present it this way? Who is the person presenting it? This, that, and the other. Um, critical thinking, which will hopefully lead to them having a very, very, very successful career in problem solving, because that's what it all kind of kind of comes back to. How do we fix the issues of the present? Well, you start by looking at the past. Look yep. at the past, and odds are it's happened before. They may have called it something different. It may have looked different, but odds are this, these problems are not new. So, I answered that. So that means I asked the next one. Uh, Leah, at what? Wait a minute. Didn't I? I asked the last one. Didn't, whatever. I'll, I asked ask, this one. I'll ask you. Yeah, I'll ask that's you. fine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, just, I don't know. It's okay. Weird. We're still getting used to this. It's okay. At what age do we start teaching hard history? I think we start teaching it at age zero. However, scaffolding. Mm hmm. And I don't mean like scaffolding, like for a construction site, I mean like educational scaffolding, right? And so you build up to even harder stuff. 
I think it's never too early to talk about fairness. I think although a lot of topics of U.S. history or otherwise is centered around equality, right? And equal, what's equal, that means what, what's fair, right? Um, equality and equity is, is, is about fairness and what's just and what's right. And I don't think it's you're ever too early to talk about fairness, about right and wrong, about values. Mm -hmm. And like all of that is integrative in talking about hard topics in, in history. I think every topic in history is a hard topic. If you're telling that, if you're being honest, um, whether it's Columbus, whether it's the Revolutionary War, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's uh, uh, World War I, World War II, I mean, I think any topic in history is a hard topic if you're telling multiple perspectives. If you're only telling one perspective, oh, it was this glorious battle that we won over this, that, and the other people, and we took this land and this, that, and the other, and that was the whole story. Okay, what about the other angle? Because I guarantee they're going to tell something completely different. Yes, you may still come to the same conclusion, a loss is a loss, however... The context and the aftermath of that may be very, 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 very different. So I think at age zero, I mean, at least that's how I try to, to treat it. It's about teaching about people are different, right? But just because they're different doesn't mean that's wrong, that they're different than you, right? People are different. Um, but yeah, you teach about fairness, you teach about justity, justice, you teach about equality, you begin to plant the seeds of, of, of what equity is and privilege and marginalization and who was the, who are the in groups who are the out groups i think there's never too early to to really start talking about that and then as the you know as you continue to teach about that as they continue to grasp that you of course evolve into more specific examples here's what happens when an in group goes against an out group here's what happens when the privileged do something against the marginalized here's what happens when when, when tyranny and oppression are allowed to to go unchecked then, then you get into the real nitty gritty. But I don't think there's an age that's too early to start talking about fairness. Your thoughts, Leah? Yeah, I agree. Um, the short answer is, based on the kid, kids have questions. They will ask you all types of questions if you listen to them. They, they're seeing things, and like you said about fairness and equality, oh, kids know when they're not being treated fairly, and they will let you know. Um, so to begin with that foundation of being different is not bad. It is not wrong. It is just different. And once you have that, you can build on the harder topics. Um, definitely. Uh, so big reader, if you didn't, couldn't tell that already. I like reading children's books to help explain difficult topics. Some writers sometimes said, if you want to talk about something traumatic, write small. If you, so trying to explain a difficult topic, how would you explain it to a little kid? That's how I factor in um, when I'm creating programs, how to scale language, what words to say, where words not to say, um, going from there. Um, so when I moved, I brought all my Magic Treehouse books, my Dear Americas, my Royal Diaries, and how I engaged with those historical figures that way. But um, the American Gold Books, Addie. So Addie was an enslaved girl. So learning about her taught about the institution of slavery. So finding what's applicable to the child, what the kid's interested in, and then meeting them that way. That being said, there needs to be a debrief afterwards like don't show them a traumatic movie or a thing and then just leave it 
got to talk them through it because they, they're going to have questions. A lot of history is scary. People were hateful and mean, and they hurt people because they had their own motives or value systems that did not go along with those other groups. So part of teaching hard history is being willing to be uncomfortable as a teacher or a parent or an aunt, um, in my case, to provide the space for the kids to have those conversations and just say like, hey, this is what happened in this time period. This is why it happened. Um, so, yeah. I think you said it. So speaking of books, though, Leah is a yes. reader. I'm not a reader, but that's another conversation. That's because okay. I'm, I'm, I'm in grad school, so I, I don't have no time to read. Um, and I'm going to go back into school so I can continue not reading. But <laughs> um, we that had kind of influenced this, the choice of this question, which is kind of in the cultural segment. Um, and we'll try to be concise because we are over time, but that's all right. So, Leah, what's your favorite book, favorite books within or influenced by African-American culture? Okay, so this one's heavy. Let's, let's be clear. I want to give that caveat. Warning. Yeah. Okay, whatever Jacqueline Woodson writes, I read. She's one of those authors. I'm like, yep, new book, got to buy it. So I read this book in middle school and in high school, and I still have it, same copy. Um, and the book is called If You Come Softly. It's The title was based off an Audre Lorde poem. So here we go. Boy and a girl, they're in love. It's great. She's of Jewish heritage. He's African-American. Um, and in the book, his dad tells him explicitly, do not run in public. It's dangerous. Which, depending on somebody's background or heritage, they may know like that's part of a safety rule. You don't run in public. So, spoiler, what happens is Jeremiah, um, or Maya, is killed. He was falsely, um, they thought he was a suspect, and he was, he was killed by accident. Um, and part of the story is the, like, the cute romance, the buildup, the, like, the cultural differences, how they work that out. They're together, it's happy, and then it all falls apart because, you know, he's, he's now gone. So how she um, dealt with that grief, how, her, how his parents dealt with that grief in those conversations. Um, but so the book is good. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It is heavy. You go for a walk afterwards. You got to get up and move. There's also a sequel. Um, Behind You is the name of the sequel. Have that too. So it kind of gives, it tells a story about a story that is common, depending on your background, that not everybody would know. So yeah, definitely. I know you said you read it in middle school. Yeah. What, uh, what age would you recommend for well, folks to read it? Well, I'm going to give it to high school. High school. High school, high school and up. It's probably a safe bet. Yeah. High school. Um, all right. Mine's a little lighter. That has some heavy notes of it, but I won't get into those. But um, for anybody who knows me semi-well, you know that my one of my idols is Terry Crews. Terry Crews is a, is, is a beast. He's an animal, the kind of animal I like. And so <laughs> back when I lift weights and stuff like that, I was like, yeah, be like Terry Crews, right? Uh, so he wrote this book about manhood, um, how to be a better man or just live with one. 
And uh, that's the probably one of the first books I've read cover to cover, like in a reasonable amount of time, like not like considering like AR tests in elementary school or anything like that. Like first first book I read like cover to cover because I wanted to like and in like a reasonable like not like years apart. Um, yeah, it's fan, it's fantastic. And he talked about like gender roles and about you know just how how men are uh, culturalized. Is that the word? How how the I don't, I don't know how how the like portrayed the media and supposed to be the tough guys and you know the caregivers and can't cry and all that other all those other stereotypes. And it's him like Terry Crews who's like six foot whatever three hundred pounds of pure muscle, right? Saying it's okay to cry, like it's okay to feel your feelings, like hearing that from him is just a super powerful powerful thing and it really stood out to me because i did subscribe to a lot of those for a very very long time like, oh i can't cry oh bottle your feelings oh you have to be the protector you have to be the caregiver you have to do this and, and i'm not saying that none of that all that's not okay but you know don't bottle your feelings feel them right let them out or go into counseling right like it's a very counseling is still stigmatized mm. um within within a lot of a lot of a lot of culture i mean i think Gen Z and, and certainly later millennials have done a better job of kind of pushing forward, like saying, hey, mental health is okay, it's okay to get help. But um, hearing that from a guy like Terry Crews is just such a, a, he's such a powerful person to, to give that example. And somebody who you wouldn't probably traditionally expect to be naming an example like that. Um, and as for age range, I mean, I think you could read, if whenever you're able to, to read it, I guess, I'm not sure what reading level it's on, but whatever reading level that that book is on is probably appropriate to start to start reading it, I'd say. Oh. Yep. Anything else for you, Miss Leah Brown? No, I think that's it for this one. That is all for today. Uh, so make sure you follow us on our social media platforms, all at Moton Museum, um, to keep up with what's happening at the museum, but also to send us your questions, please. We need your questions. Please send your questions. Um, you can email us at info at moatonmuseum.org. Um, and then stay tuned same time same place next week for episode four thanks thank you have a good one The Moton Mailbag is brought to you by the Robert Russo Moton Museum, located in Farmville, Virginia. The Moton Museum is a civil rights museum focusing on the history of Prince Edward County between 1951 and 1964. 